Well, we are continuing our study on 2 Peter. And last week, we, uh, we began our study teaching, uh, Peter was teaching the folks in, in, in the church that he planted how to grow as a Christian, how to become mature. And we all know that, you know, when you become a Christian, that's not the end of it, right? It's the beginning. It's the beginning of your growth process. And just like the Bible calls us spiritual babies, and just like when you bring a baby home, your job is to nurture that baby, feed him and instruct him, and one day they'll be on their own. And that's the same way we do as, as a Christian. We come to God as a baby, and we continue to grow and mature and study and become an mature, mature adult Christian. It's not just a one-time prayer at the front, and then that's it. Your life is the beginning of a growth process and maturity process. So Peter begins a list of qualities that every believer needs to actively work on. How many, when you read these things and you read the fruit of the Spirit, how many realize they don't come automatically? You don't wake up one day and you are filled with the Spirit and you have love and joy and peace and you have all these attributes. These are things that God allows you to have, but God wants you to work on to get them. And, it, and I, I, I equate this to building a, a wall, either a bricks or concrete block. And Harry's not here this morning. He's the bricklayer. I could have him give an example. When you lay a brick wall or make a brick wall, your first layer has to be bigger than the layer that goes on top of it. And that layer has to be bigger than the, th the third layer. So it's like a, a pyramid when you're done. The bottom layer is the biggest and the second layer can only be as big as the bottom layer is. And that's how these virtues are built upon. It's not just every one, but every one's succession or succeeds from the one previous. Peter's first layer of bricks that we talked about was goodness. And it, basically, if you don't become morally good, morally excellent, all the other characteristics that Peter talks about aren't going to work well because you can have knowledge and all these things, but if they're not based on the goodness of God, it's going to be kind of wrong. You can have a lot of knowledge, but not use it correctly. Once you have the moral excellence, then you use that excellence to develop the knowledge that you have. And not just worldly knowledge, although that's part of it. You want to become wise in how you do your job, things you live with, your work, your home. You want to become wise in things of the world, but you also want to be spiritually wise. How does God work? So you want to build your wisdom through knowledge. Then as we gain knowledge, once you gain knowledge, now you have to exercise self-control, basically controlling the knowledge that you have. Once you acquire that knowledge, what do you do with it? And to deny yourself or, or control yourself, you have to be able to exercise self-control. And deny, to deny ourselves certain things that may hinder your growth or spiritual walk. How many have ever heard of John Maxwell? Leadership guy, he writes a lot of books. He's been around for a while. Former pastor. And his, one of his uh, leadership quotes that really stuck with me is, in order to go up, you have to give up. In other words, if you wanna go up in life, there are things that you give up to go up. You have to give up certain things. You wanna be a great athlete, you have to give up your free time in order to practice. If you want to go up in the business world, you have to give up your right to leave at five o'clock, right? You have to give up your ability to leave your work at your office. How many of us take our work home with us? 
You now have to take it with you and put in longer hours. You have to go give up things that you may want to do in order to progress in the field that you are studying. If you want to be married, you now have to give up your single life. If you want to be a parent, you now have to give up sleep and you have to give up everything else to be a parent. Everything you want to do now becomes secondary to being a parent. So in order to go up, you have to give up. And that's exactly what he's talking about with self-control. There are things in your life that God is now asking you to give up in order to spiritually grow up. And now we come to the next layer of spiritual maturity or growth. And it's verse 5. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance. There's a word that no one likes to hear. No show of hands, but how many have ever started a diet? What does a diet require? It requires perseverance. You don't lose that weight in a week. You have to continue to persevere. Part of self-control is persevering. If you want a good devotional life, I challenge the kids today, the teens, I asked them, what was the last thing you read in your Bible? I got this blank stare from all of them. <laughs> in order to have a good devotional life, you have to persevere with it. Because when you start reading and you start taking time to pray, trust me, everything's going to come up to keep your mind off of it. If you want to get up early to read your Bible, you will become extraordinarily tired in the morning. That alarm clock's going to go off what it seems to be very early. You're not going to get up. You have to persevere with it. The first time you do it, you're up, you're doing it. The first week goes by, it kind of wanes. Third week comes, it's a little harder to do. Perseverance is what's required for us to do it for the long haul. Because things that we want to do that are mature and beneficial to us happen over a long period of time. They don't happen right away. When you want to become an athlete, a physician, or whatever you want to become, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes perseverance on our part to acquire the skills and knowledge to do what we're called to do. And the same thing is with Christ. When you want to become a mature Christian, it's going to take perseverance. As you continue to deny yourself things that you know get in the way of you becoming a mature believer, it's going to require perseverance because those temptations are not going to go away. The temptation to slide back, the temptation to give in, the temptation to quit doing what you're doing because you don't see instant results. The thing about using diet as an example, there may not be an instant result. But if you persevere, you're going to see the result. When you become an athlete, you don't become a professional athlete overnight. It takes time, 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 and perseverance to get there. And spiritual maturity is going to require us to stick it out even when we don't feel like it. How many of you, when you start to do your devotional life, don't feel like doing it? There's a thousand other things that come to your mind that you want to do or you feel need to be done, and so they take your attention away from it. You just don't want to do it. You don't want to get up early. You don't want to stay up late. You don't want to give the time. That's when perseverance comes in 
and you have to do it even when you don't feel like it. Depending on which translation you use, the word perseverance can also mean patience. And when Peter is listening to these qualities, self-control is usually involved with life's pleasures. Perseverance or patience is used in correlation to life's difficulties. So when he's talking about self-control, that's denying yourself things that you want to do. Perseverance or patience is being able to endure the things that happen to you that you don't like. So on both ends of the spectrum, God's calling you to step out, and it's not easy. It's rewarding, but it takes effort on our part. A person who cannot be self-controlled with life's pleasures usually isn't able to persevere life's hardships. That's why self-control is first. If you control what you want to do, all the things that pop up in your mind that you think are pleasurable, if you're able to control those, you're more able to handle difficult situations when they come up. And just like every other uh, virtue on the list, it doesn't happen overnight. And verse 4 goes on and says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's in James chapter 1, verse 2. Takes time. As you focus on being good, it becomes easier. Then being good, as it becomes easier, the next step is easier. The more knowledge you're able to handle, the more that you make this a habit and you consistently do it, they become a little easier to do. One commentary says it this way. Perseverance is the ability to continue in the faith and resist, and resist the pressures of the world system. It's easy to fall into what the world is doing. Our lesson today was in, in youth group. We talked about your lifestyle outside of church. How do we live when, we don't, when we're not here? It's easy to live a Christian life in here. But how do we live it outside? And the example they give, it was a high school example. That's not a true story, but it's just an example. How these two, quote, Christian leaders in their youth group were making fun of another student in high school. And the point was, do you fall in with the crowd? Because everyone else is doing it. Do you fall in with them to be like them? Or are you able to stand against them and do the right thing even though it may cause you grief? As a Christian, we should be able to stand and be different than everybody else. I told, I told this to them, and when people look at us as believers, who they, aren't, they don't know Christ, they want to see something in you that's different from what they and their friends are like. If we're the same as them, whenever hardship comes their way, we have nothing to show them. If we're just like they are, we've got nothing different. However, if we live a life that exemplifies Christ, they may not like us, they may not agree with us, but I'm telling you, the first time hardship comes their way, they're going to be looking you up. They're going to be trying to figure out what it is you have that makes you the way you are. They won't know what it is. They won't understand it. But they know that you have some kind of a, a peace or a comfort or you're able to endure hardship. How do you do that? They're going to want to know, and we need to be sufficiently different from them so that they see it 
And when that hardship comes, they come to us. Now, verse 6 goes on. Add to perseverance godliness. And the word godliness actually means godlikeness, or like this, this thing, to worship well. It describes a man who is in right relationship with God and with his fellow man. Someone who seeks to do God's will regardless of the pain or trials it may produce. He does what is right simply because it is right. How often are we faced with situations that if we do the right thing, it will cause grief. However, if we do the wrong thing, no grief. Life is easy. Are we sufficiently godly enough so that we're able to choose to do the right thing? Do we worship? When it says worship well, it's not meaning in here. It's meaning out there. Do we live a life of worship out there? It doesn't mean we're raising our hands and closing our eyes. It just means that our life is a reflection of who Christ is. Are we showing God by our lifestyle that we appreciate him and we worship him? I try to teach this to the kids that no matter where you are, God's with you. I won't find out, your parents might not find out, but God is gonna know. God is gonna know. And so when we're out, and we're not around all of our Christian buddies, do we fall in with everybody else? Do we act like the people we hang with? Or are we different than them? Do we worship well? Do we let our life reflect Christ, even in negative situations? Verse 7 goes on, after we get godliness, then it's brotherly kindness. And the Greek word is literally Philadelphia. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't know about that, but that's the word. Being a Christian requires us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. How many realize that dealing with people isn't always the most pleasant thing to do? Right? And some people are easier to love than others. Not here, down the street. But God requires us to love them regardless. 1 John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And he has given us this command. I like that. Not a suggestion. Command. Whoever loves God must also love his brothers. And how many realize that we can't love people in our own strength? Right? We can love a few but God says we have to love them all. And the only way we can do that is through the power of God. All the virtues that we've discussed up till now, are, they build us up and they strengthen us. They give us the ability to show that love to people who maybe don't either deserve it or aren't that lovely to us. 
And the last word he comes to in that phrase, after we get brotherly kindness, in other words, love people, love them on a human level, then the last word he says, after brotherly kindness, love. Now that word is agape. And who knows what that means? Unconditional love. That means you love people regardless of who they are. When we, with brotherly love, we love because of our likeness to other people. We have friends that are similar to us. We love people who are similar to us. We love people who have the same interests as us. Agape says you love people in spite of their differences, in spite of them being opposite of you, you love them. That's what Jesus used for us. Jesus' word was agape. He was unconditional in his love for us. And then after we have love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, now we have to pour that love into the world for people who actually may hate Christians. Isn't that what God did for us? Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't that we were pretty good and Christ died for us. It's while we hated God, wanted nothing to do with God, he died for us. That's agape love. All these characteristics don't happen automatically. They require our dependence on God and our diligent effort to cultivate and produce them. It requires us to do things that aren't natural to the human spirit. It requires us to do things just because God calls us to do them. And then as we do them, we see God giving us the power to accomplish them. People may themselves have some of these characteristics. They may have some of these virtues. But when they do, they have these abilities in themselves. What happens is those abilities point people to them. When you have this ability infilled by the Spirit of God, it doesn't point them to you, it points them to Christ. When they see you, do they acknowledge you or do they acknowledge the God in you? I, I've used this example before. For miracles that happen and all these things that we see maybe in the news, what is the point of the miracle? whether it's a statue crying or whatever it might be. What, what happens when they have that? Do people come to the statue? Do they acknowledge the statue, maybe worship the statue? Or does that supposed miracle point people to Jesus? If that miracle does not point people to Jesus, then my opinion is disregard it. Because the, the whole purpose of healings and miracles and all those things is to point people to Christ. And if it doesn't do it, then reject it. And people who may have some of these characteristics, they will draw attention to themselves. Rather than pointing people to Christ. That's why God wants us to be able to use the Spirit to help us grow and mature, and we have to work on it to do it. God wants us to be what we know, he knows he can be, we can be. Romans 8, 29 says, for God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. So that means everyone in here, God knows you, God chose you, and God knows that he can make you like Jesus. 
but it requires work on our part. And the one thing about this is we cooperate with God. If we allow God to work in us, he makes us into who he wants us to be. But when he does that, he does not dissolve our personality. How many understand that? God uses who our, what our personality is, what our likes and dislikes are. He uses our abilities or inabilities to make us perfect for that. If you look at the, the apostles, Mark was shy, quiet, kind of reserved. Paul was brash in your face. Peter was putting his foot in his mouth, just making mistakes all over the place. But God used each one of them, their own characteristics, to do what only they could do. Not everyone is going to be a preacher. Not everyone is going to be a singer. Not everyone is going to be an evangelist. God is going to use your personality, your likes, your dislikes, to reach people that you can reach. If everyone were the same, we'd all be redundant. God uses each of our characteristics. He refines them. He allows us to be who we are in order to reach people. I used to tell my kids when they were little, we had a couple who really, you know, strong-willed types. And I would always tell them, look, my job is to make you use your powers for good. Because strong-willed kids, strong-willed people, they're your leaders. They're going to be the leaders, business leaders, church leaders, our job is to hone them so they use those strong-willed characteristics for good, that they're able to exercise those in a Christ-like manner. We become what God wants us to be, even though we are still unique. And this is something that I had to come to grips with over the time. God does not want you to become like anybody else. He wants you to become who Jesus is. You know, for the longest time, if you're going through Bible college, you, you watch all these preachers and all these people on TV, and you want to be like them. You want to, I want to preach like that. I want to talk like that. I wish I could do all that stuff. And God said, they didn't call you to be Charles Stanley. <laughs> I didn't call you to be Chuck Swindoll. I called you to be you. Use all your quirks and your idiosyncrasies under my anointing, and God will do it through you. As parents, we don't, duplicate ourselves we don't make our kids exactly like us as much as we would like to right we want them to be themselves to be unique in their ability to serve God to be better than we are to be different than we are focus on God not a person God will use who you are he will use your personality he will use your mannerisms, your idiosyncrasies, your unique talents and abilities. God transforms them in you. He doesn't erase them. He transforms them, hones them, and you become unique in your ability to serve God. So now Peter, once he lists all these challenges or these virtues, he challenges them one more time. It's not enough to get them one time and be done. Verse 8 says, for if you possess these qualities, what? In increasing measures. You don't get them once and you're done. You continue to grow each one. You continue to get more goodness. You continue to get more knowledge. You continue to get more self-control. It never ends. 
Our old pastor used to say, we can't ever say we've arrived. That's all we need from God. There used to be a commercial a long time ago when the internet was pretty new and they showed a, a computer screen and it said, the end. And the guy on the computer said, hey, I've reached the end of the internet. I've seen all there is to see on the internet. And we all know that's ridiculous. There's nothing, you, there's no end to it. And that's the way it is with God. There's never a point we can come to say, you know what, I have studied enough. I've read enough, I know enough, I'm good. The Bible says, keep getting these qualities in increasing measure. And if we do that, if we continue to grow, we never arrive, he tells us that we will see evidences of our growth when we do. How many have noticed a change in your life, a change in how you react and how you treat people? It's because of God allowing it to happen. You're growing. Verse 8 says, these, or they. What? What are they? Those are the virtues he talked about. He says, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you feel productive in what you do for God? Do you kind of not feel productive? The Bible says, if you do these things, you will not be ineffective. You will not be unproductive. If you keep pursuing them, you can't help but be productive. You can't help but be effective if you allow these things to grow in your life. And you don't need special talents and abilities to be productive. Simply following Christ and he will do it through you. He will allow you to be productive when you think you can't be. People are fruitful because they're faithful. And sometimes we mischaracterize what it means to be successful. Success usually involves numbers, usually involves abilities, usually involves some quantitative item. Noah preached for 100 years. How many people got saved in 100 years? Eight. Now it's just his family. People are effective if they're serving Christ and allowing God to work through them. Now what happens if we, once we get saved, we don't do anything? We walk away from the altar saying, you know what? I said the prayer, I'm good. Verse 9 says this, if anyone does not have these things, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. If we lack the discipline to tackle these and grow, realizing what God has done for us, our relationship with him will dwindle. There's a phrase they use in the military, it's called a perishable skill. If you're a marksman, it's a perishable skill. In other words, if you don't keep practicing, you're gonna lose it. And that's the same way it is with Christ. If you walk away from the altar and you pray, and you never do anything with it, and you're, you're just happy to come to church on Sunday once in a while, your relationship with Christ is going to dwindle. You're going to be unproductive, and you're going to, and the Bible says, nearsighted and blind, and you will forget what God has done for you. And it will become a matter of habit. What happens is in churches, when this happens, churches become inward focused. Just like as Christians, we can become inward focused. 
It's all about me. It's all about my family. It's all about the church. What happens is churches who forget what God has done for them, forget and are nearsighted and blind, they lose sight of the community and they lose sight of those who need to be saved and they become focused on what makes me comfortable. It all becomes about what I need, what we need, what we want, rather than focusing on the Great Commission. And it all boils down to this. If we do these things that Peter tells us to do, we will become more like Christ. And when that happens, automatically, we will have more of a heart for the world. That is just a natural byproduct of doing what God calls us to do. If we don't do these things, we will become self-absorbed and care about only ourselves. I wrote down here, which do we want to be? And Peter kind of answers that question for you in verse 10. He says, therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fail and never fall. And you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one quote I like. It says this. He says, it's not our profession of faith that guarantees we are saved. It's our progression in the faith that gives us the assurance. I like the way the New Living Translation does verse 10. It says, so dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you are really among those God has called and chosen. Doing this, you'll never stumble or fall away. We're not saved by what we do, but we are saved to do. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're, not saved, you're saved by grace, not by works, lest any man should boast. We forget verse 10. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created, created us anew in Christ Jesus so that what? We can do the good things he planned for us long ago. James 2.17 says, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what? By what I do. All these virtues are not things we do in a bubble. All these virtues that God has called us to have are to equip us to do what God's called us to do. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.11, I believe, that God's given us pastors and teachers and prophets and all those things. Why? To equip the saints, yin's guys, to do the work of the ministry. Everyone is called to do. Everyone is called to be a part of what God's doing. All those virtues basically equips you and puts you in a position where God is able to just pick you up and use you wherever you are. If you don't acquire them, if you don't, aren't diligent in becoming more like Christ, the Bible says you're going to be useless in God's kingdom. And it may get to the point where you walk away from it. The last question I wrote here is, where do we stand, each of us today? Do our lives truly represent someone who has been forgiven and is growing in the faith, or do we fool ourselves into thinking that I said a prayer years ago, and I don't need to do anything else?
I'm good. God calls us to continue to grow, continue to mature. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, Paul says to the Corinthians, you guys should be eating steak by now, but you're still eating baby food because you have not matured in the faith. That's the Bender translation. You need to be able to get to the point where you are eating steak, eating solid food, being an adult in your faith rather than just a child. Would you stand this morning as we close? If you'd bow your heads for a moment. If God wanted to, just by speaking the word, everyone on earth could be saved. Everyone on earth could be blessed. But the realization is, God has chosen to do it through us. He has chosen to use his church to do our job. God has given us the ability to study, the ability to grow, the ability to mature, to get to the point where we are usable in God's kingdom that we will be in a position where God can use us as a fine instrument. People go to medical school, engineering school, accounting school, to develop the ability to do and master those qualities, those professions, to be able to do their job. The church has its job. We call it the Great Commission. All these virtues, all these abilities that Peter encourages them to get is not to puff themselves up, is to prepare them for what's going to face them in the world. The Bible tells us we are to be in the world, in it. We live in it, we work in it, we shop in it. We just don't become a part of it. We're called to be agents of change in the world in which we live. These abilities give us the power to change those we come in contact with, to introduce them to Christ. It gives us the ability to teach and to train and to become useful in every aspect of God's kingdom. God has called the church to make disciples not just converts, disciples. In other words, we bring them in, we lead them to Jesus, and then we teach them and we train them and we grow them up so that they come at one point and they now can be teachers and trainers. And the cycle doesn't stop. But it calls us as a church, right now, we're here, we're called to be that. We are called to be the ones that train and teach and go. Before I close, I've got to ask one question. Where are you in God's kingdom? Are you on the sidelines? You've heard it all. Maybe you've heard it for years and you've never responded to it. 
Well, the Bible says there's no accent. You're here because God brought you here. You're here because God wants you to hear or see or experience something to bring you into a relationship with Jesus. If you're here and you've never experienced that, you've, you've heard about it, people have told you, family members have told you, but you've never really, you've never really accepted that truth. And you want to do that today, I want you to raise your hand right now. Maybe you're here this morning and you said the prayer at one point and you're, you're fairly faithful to, to church, but that's about as far as it goes. You don't spend a whole lot of time in God's word. You don't spend a whole lot of time in prayer unless something bad happens, and then you're, you're jumping into God's word. Peter tells him, if you're like that, it's gonna eventually fade away, and you're not gonna have that relationship. And God's not going to be there when you need him. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Because you know who you are. And you know you need to change that. The Bible says God will give you the ability to change it. But you do have to work at it. You've got to let God do it through you. And for the rest of us who... Hopefully, we are in studying and growing and maturing, being sufficiently available to God when he calls us. Whether it's to move to Indianapolis or it's to simply teach a class or witness to your neighbor or talk to the person at the grocery store. Are we in a position that if God says, do it now, that we can do it now? If you have these abilities, if you grow these virtues, you'll be in a position, you'll be ready. That God will use you at a moment's notice and you won't hesitate because you'll be built up in these virtues that Peter talked about. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us and for helping us to remember the sins from which we have been called. That our life wasn't great before we came to you that you saved us from a bunch of stuff in our life that was sinful, wicked, and you transformed us and you made us into who you knew we could be. Lord, I pray your blessings upon each person. Help them to realize not what they were, but who you've called them to be, who you know they can be in your kingdom. Allow them to realize they are not the sum of their past life. They are a new person. The old is gone. What you used to be is gone. Now you're a clean slate. And God can build from there. If you let him. And Father, we thank you for allowing us to understand that. So Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal that in each person here. And allow our lives to be changed by your spirit. And Father, we ask all these things for the sake, honor, and glory of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a tremendous week. Join us on Wednesday night as we study through God's word and return next Sunday to hear more of what Peter is telling the church. We love you this morning.